Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now, radio check. Now, radio check for What are you talking about? This conversation can serve purpose. You're Jay talking. We're live midnight to five. Money laundering. You hear it referenced in the news. You hear you hear it referenced. You see it referenced in TV shows. As a matter of fact, there's a really good series now. I recommend it called Ozark, which is focused on a money launderer. And I, I frankly don't understand it as well as I could, as well as I should. So to remedy that, we have David Siegel here, professor and director, Center for Law and Social Responsibility, New England Law, the Boston version, right? Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for being with us. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Bradley. What is money laundering? So money laundering is the crime of hiding proceeds from illegal activity. And it can be all kinds of illegal activities, but the, the key part of the crime is the attempt to hide the source of that money. All right, I understand there are four, four parts to a successful charge of money laundering. So if you're gonna launder money, and I'm not suggesting that you do, but if you were going to, uh, you're gonna need four things to happen. So the first thing is that someone has to commit a crime that generates proceeds, generates money. Uh, and under federal law, uh, that can be one of a variety of serious crimes, uh, drug trafficking, uh, running a corrupt organization, uh, anything involving a foreign country and bribery, murder, kidnapping, that sort of thing. Also, terrorism, counterfeiting, and a lot of crimes that you might not think of as so serious, a copyright infringement, a fraudulent loan or credit card applications, all those kinds of things. Somebody has to commit a crime, uh, one of those crimes, under state or federal law that generates money. Okay. So you, so have, to get a, a, you have to get a sum of money using illegal means. Exactly. Okay. That's part one. Step one. Okay. The second thing is that the person who's going to be charged with money laundering or who's going to do the money laundering has to know that these are the proceeds of illegal activity. They don't have to know exactly what crime it was. They just have to know it's any felony under federal, state, or even foreign law. doesn't matter which one as long as they know that it comes from illegal activity. 
Do they really need to know, K-N-O-W, know it's a legal activity? Or could they be held accountable if any reasonable person would suspect that under the conditions, given the amounts, what you've been told, that it is the result of a legal activity? So that's a great question, Bradley. And there's a concept in the criminal law called uh, willful blindness. When you close your eyes to the obvious, when you try and remain deliberately ignorant uh, to the obvious facts, that can be knowing too. So, you know, somebody comes up to you with uh, a, a shopping bag full of, you know, $100,000 in cash, and they just want you to uh, deposit it for them, uh, no questions asked, um, and you sort of say, well, you know, this seems a little odd. Don't you have a bank account? Can't you do this? And, and they make all sorts of excuses. That's probably a situation where there's a pretty good case that you would be uh, deliberately ignorant, willfully blind to the illegal source of that money. Are there other areas in the legal world where willful blindness pops up? There are. So any in in any circumstance in which a person can be charged with a crime uh, uh, that requires knowledge, where the mental state is is knowing or knowledge, uh, some jurisdictions, including uh, federal law, federal criminal law, allow prosecution when a person is willfully blind. So ordinarily, uh, knowledge requires um, you, you have to have practical certainty that something uh, exists. I have to have practical certainty that, that you got all this money from illegal activity. But even if I, uh, if I don't have practical certainty, but I really ought to, given the facts. Okay. For example, how about this example? Say somebody says, hey, can you, I'm going to need a ride. I'm going to need to go really fast. And you're going to have to go through stoplights. And I'm going to be coming out of the bank. And I'm going to be probably running. And I want you to drive really fast. And you didn't ask any more questions than that. You really didn't know what's going on, really. But if you did that, didn't ask any questions. Would you be exhibiting willful blindness? Uh, That's not, the kind of thing. You'd not only be exhibiting willful blindness, you'd probably also be uh, be a charge partner in that bank robbery. Right. So, you know, the you guy- You can't say, hey, I didn't know. Yeah. The guy who says, uh, look, I got to make a withdrawal. I got to make a quick withdrawal from the bank. Uh, it's not going to take long. You just stay here, keep the motor running, leave this door open, uh, and um, when I come out, uh, I'm going to be running. I'm just going to jump in, and I want you to take off. Uh, and don't pay any attention to the fact that I'm putting this mask on over my face before I go in. Right. Yeah. That's that's willful blindness. Okay. So in order for money laundering to exist, any sort of charge of money, money laundering, you have to have a sum of money obtained illegally, and you have to – the next part is – You've got to have you knowledge. You have to know – the person that it's uh, illegally got. Yes, gains. the person who's the person who's the launderer. It may be the same person who's engaged in the illegal activity, or it may be a different person who's the launderer. That person's got to know that the money is the proceeds of some illegal activity, and then the launderer has to conduct a, a transaction with it, a financial transaction uh, that can be as simple as depositing it in the bank, uh, buying a boat, 
buying a financial instrument, uh, investing in a, a business, uh, doing anything with it. Um, and then finally, and this is really the, the thing that can be hardest to prove, they, they have to make that transaction for one of four different purposes or with four different goals. It's either got to be to promote the underlying illegal activity, that, that uh, first thing that we were talking about, or to avoid paying taxes on it, or to conceal or disguise the source or control of that money, or to avoid a transaction reporting requirement. So federal law requires that uh, financial institutions report transactions uh, in excess of $10,000 in cash. They have to record who, who they got the money from and when uh, and make a report of that to the Department of the Treasury. Efforts to avoid that, uh, so-called structured transactions, can be money laundering, where you deposit slightly less than $10,000. Because? Because you want to avoid that reporting requirement. Yeah. So 10, 10 grand is the amount that automatically gets reported as a transaction that goes on Correct. a list of stuff we might want to look at. Exactly. Okay. And and it it's there's nothing illegal about it. There's nothing illegal about depositing more than $10,000. Uh, there's nothing illegal about depositing less than 10000 unless you do it with the intent of trying to avoid that reporting requirement. Now, speaking practically, I'm curious as to how uh, there, what are some ways that people go about it? Maybe you can give some examples, not real life examples, some made up examples. Sure. So uh, some hypothetical examples. Yeah, there you go. Uh, you know, uh, one of the easiest ways to uh, launder money is to get it, to get money that's from illegal activity mingled in with money from law, li lawful or licit activities. May I uh, put a pin in that and ask, what are some of the common illegal activities? Besides, um, we talked about drug sales. What so, else? So, so uh, money laundering, the federal money laundering statute was enacted in 1986, and it was really directed at drug transactions, sort of dr international drug transactions. But um, any kind of fraud uh, that involves getting... With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Money from people uh, has the potential to need uh, to engage in money laundering. Credit card fraud. Credit card fraud, uh, pyramid schemes, uh, anybody who engages, you know, in any kind of real estate or bank fraud, somebody who gets money under fraudulent pretenses, you know, they, they borrow money from a bank by misrepresenting the business they have or the cash flow or something like that. Or some foreign government gives them a batch of money that they probably they don't want people to know about um, some foreign government or foreign agent or even a domestic person. OK, so um, anyone who does something like that. So you you borrow money 
from the bank under false pretenses by misrepresenting the cash flow of your business or your assets or something like that. Once you take that money and spend it, you make a transaction, you invest it in something, you buy something, that's money laundering because you've taken those uh, ill-gotten proceeds and engaged in a transaction. So in addition to the potential original crime, you, you, you tack that onto that money laundering. And so that's one of the things that makes money laundering so uh, powerful as a prosecutorial tool because it's almost inevitably an add-on to any kind of illegal activity. Which you can use as leverage and yep. still you could take that away and still get a decent sentence for right. someone. So, exactly. So, um, you know, follow the money, right? That's that's the adage from Watergate. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the way a lot of more sophisticated uh, investigations and prosecutions operate now uh, because there is so much regulation and recording uh, of transactions. It's not as if people are, you know, squirreling away uh, money in mattresses or in paper bags that guys hand off to one another. Um, when you need to move uh, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, people are going to do it electronically. And each of those kinds of transactions generates a record mm -hmm. uh, and they can be traced back. So how is it that people who are engaged in that kind of money laundering hide the, uh, the source. Right. Well, so uh, they create shell corporations. They create third parties uh, to handle these transactions. So if I were going to launder money, I might create a corporation in some uh, offshore uh, country that had uh, looser financial regulations. Uh, that might just involve a post office box and a registered agent uh, in one of those countries. Uh, and then I might have that company be owned by a shell company in another third country. So you have money ill-gotten. You wire it. You send it to a post office box. And well, this is one way. Some country with looser, looser rules. Somebody picks that up and then deposits that or buys a piece of a shell corporation. In another country. And then that country, that company uh, takes that money and opens a bank account in in a perfectly legitimate, you know, uh, U.S.-based financial institution mm -hmm. and deposits it. And now when... In whose uh, name? Their name still? Maybe in their name. Maybe in their name. Maybe and in then some, yet someone else's name. Somebody else's name. And then... Uh, I send that person an invoice for my services and they pay me my money that has now been laundered through three or four shell corporations and comes out of a perfectly legal, legitimate looking uh, bank account in a U.S. bank. And I'm guessing you would bill them in increments, not for the, like, the exact amount that you gave them, and that would further mask it. Sure. And, and one of the ways these kinds of things are identified so, uh, is, is something called suspicious activity reports, uh, or SARs. So uh, U.S. financial institutions, uh, after uh, some 
additional uh, bank regulation in the 1990s and then some uh, the USA Patriot Act following uh, the September 11th attacks mm-hmm. um, have to file so-called SARs or suspicious activity reports for certain kinds of transactions, large transactions, repeated transactions, transactions that come seemingly out of nowhere, um, that are out of character uh, with the account holders' um, ordinary activities. How about a group of transactions in quick succession? Same thing? That's just the kind of thing that would elicit an SAR. Banks now, as part of that, have a uh, rep- an, an obligation to know their customers or know your customer. Uh, and part of knowing your customer is not just who they are and their social security number or EIN or that kind of thing. It's also what their business activity is, what it is that generates the, the money that they have that they deposit. So willful blindness cannot be practiced by the financial institution. Uh, it's not supposed to be, no. Yeah. And, and that's part of knowing their customer. Yeah. And they can be fined quite significantly if they, if they engage in activities that facilitate money laundering by people who they should, whose activities they should know. So I'm guessing money laundering would be helpful to terrorist organizations because they might want, they might need a bunch of money to carry out an operation, but they don't want to see, they don't want officials to see where the money's coming from and where the money's going to. So uh, you're absolutely right. It could be uh, money laundering could be useful for uh, anyone who doesn't want uh, the government in particular, but also anyone who doesn't want some other people to know about the source or uh, amount of their uh, funds. So, Again, remember, money laundering has to be proceeds of illegal activity. Uh, And if you're engaged in illegal activity, and certainly you're a terrorist, you're not going to want the government to know about where that money comes from or where it's going. But if you're engaged in illegal activity and you're engaged and you're involved in a divorce or a dispute with somebody else uh, over money, you may not want that person to know about the existence of your funds either. And you may want to engage in a similar kind of, uh, again, illegal money laundering. So we've talked about ways in which the funds are illegally gotten. We really haven't talked about ways in which the laundering takes place, common <clears throat> methods of laundering. Can we start there? Sure. Start doing so, that? Um, one, of the, one of the easiest ways to uh, launder money is to pay an inflated price for something uh, that gives you uh, an item that you lawfully own that has legitimate value um, and that sort of washes the money uh, of, the, um, of the illegal taint that it had. So you might buy a piece of property um, well over market value uh, because maybe the person who's selling it, if they are engaged in the laundering as well, want to be compensated for the risk that they're taking. Um, But even if they don't, you're more interested in being able to convert your money into some other form than you are in getting a good price for that property. So we have about three minutes before the break. This will be just about the right amount of time to talk about 
the bag of money for the car. So uh, a real simple example of this might be uh, I, I saw that really nice car that you've got sitting outside um, that I'm sure is, is worth uh, well north of uh, $6,000. And I just happen to have this bag of about $25,000 in cash. Um, how about you sell me your car for 25 Gs? Is that good? You uh, good with that? I, playing the part, I'll say yes, that's good. Um, and you have any concern about me giving you a bag of uh, $25,000 in cash? Me, again, as an actor, would say, no, that's fine. So um, somebody who had a little bit more risk aversion than you might say, gee, you know, that's a lot of cash. Um, and there's not an easy access to a bank. Maybe you could convert that into a cashier's check or a bank check or something like that I could easily negotiate. And if I say, no, I don't want to waste time doing that. Yeah. I just want to give you this bag of $25,000 for your car, okay? Even though it's only worth six. Even though it's and only worth six. And the guy would have six. taken six. Yeah. Here's a question. What is the advantage of giving him the extra six grand? Because... Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're not going to see any of that later. The value of the car is not any greater when you sell it back. Why not just say, okay, six, try to launder money somewhere else? Because you're kind of just throwing that extra six grand away. Uh, maybe I've got so much cash from this illegal activity, I just got to convert it into something else. Yeah, because it's dangerous for me to have it. Yeah. All right. You could just throw it over the over a bridge. But... I could, but that's not going to make it anything I can use. Okay. And even your uh, $6,000 car is worth something to me. So then you take the car and somewhere else to the car lot down the street and say, what are you giving me for? And exactly. get what you can. Exactly. And you might get... Four grand for your 25 grand. You know, um, there's a cost to doing everything. I guess. Uh, and um, the, you know, the, the best way might be to package all that money up and have somebody take it out of the country where they could deposit it in uh, some other place and open an account. Uh, and you'd get closer to the full value. Maybe the bag of money in the car is not the best way. Money laundering is is limited only by the creativity of of people who are trying to uh, eliminate the taint of illegal activity. Um, but generally, it's commingling or mixing money from illegal activities with money from lawful activities. So you invest in a business, the business engages in some lawful activity uh, and produces profits, and then you get back some of those profits. Uh, and those, those profits can't really be traced back to their illegal source. How does the commingling Make it more difficult. I know that I should understand that automatically, but it'd be great if you could be the teacher and sure. spell it out better. Sure. So um, a, a really typical example would be investing in a business that has a lot of cash. So uh, you invest in a bar or uh, dry cleaners or a restaurant, something like that. Um, lots and it, Lots and lots of 
the activities of, of those businesses, maybe less now than used to be the case, but a lot of those activities are done in cash. And any kind of cash business uh, means that it's more difficult to trace uh, the source of the money. So you invest some of your ill-gotten gains in that business. The business engages in a lawful activity and produces profit and pays you out uh, for your investment. And it, maybe it pays you a premium because, of course, you know, you, you, uh, you gave it a very good rate uh, because you really wanted to get that money invested uh, and out of your hands. And now when you go and deposit that money, um, it's perfectly clean. That money came from your restaurant or your bar or your dry cleaners, uh, and you're, uh, you've essentially transformed the money that you originally had uh, into something that you can then uh, use uh, without worry about it being um, seized by the government or, or uh, authorities. Uh, when it comes to um, foreign agents, we hear in the news about potential money laundering involving people, uh, potential money laundering involving people who may or may not have been acting on behalf of foreign governments, like Americans working for foreign governments may be in trouble, and money laundering is mentioned. How does that work? So uh, there's nothing illegal about uh, an American uh, working for a foreign government, uh, but when uh, Americans represent a foreign government in dealings with uh, the U.S. government, when they lobby uh, American legislators, Congress, uh, or, or members of the executive branch, they have to register as foreign agents uh, so that their uh, activity, so that the, the sort of incentive behind what they're doing uh, is, is clear and can be understood. The failure to register as a foreign agent, if you are acting as one, is a crime. In and of itself, not money laundering. Right. If you're paid, however, uh, for that representation, uh, which you have not properly registered, um, the transactions with that money could be money laundering because that money could be the proceeds of illegal, because not properly registered, activities. Now, that, that's just kind of the way it could happen. Uh, obviously, there are allegations about uh, people who may have not been properly registered as foreign agents or worked as foreign agents without proper registration. And, you know, the, the, at this point, uh, those are sort of allegations. Uh, and whether there were payments that could qualify as money laundering is sort of yet to be seen. Yeah. So what can happen in the case of people working for other countries is they make money. And if they're acting on behalf of a foreign, if they're sort of a lobbyist for a foreign country, they need to register as a far, as acting for a foreign agent or a foreign agent. As a foreign agent. Okay. Right. The Foreign, and, foreign Agents Registration yeah. Act requires people who are lobbying for a foreign government or foreign entity to, to, make, to, to register as such. And so just making money and not 
Is it a crime to not register and simply act as a foreign agent, or do you have to make the money? It's a crime to act as a foreign agent without registering. Okay. So in addition, you make money for that, and you don't let anybody know about it. That's a separate crime. Right. So the, the payments that you receive from that as proceeds of that activity, which is illegal because which could be illegal because you haven't properly registered, could thereby be money laundering. So why wouldn't someone simply register as a foreign agent? Well, um, it could be an oversight. Um, it's a it's a regulatory scheme, and people might uh, people might not dot all their uh, I's and cross all their T's. It might be that uh, people do not want the relationship uh, on behalf of a foreign entity to be known. Okay. And they might also, they might not want anyone to know they made the money so they didn't have to pay taxes. Is that? So there's all kinds of reasons people might not want uh, money uh, to be uh, either reported or recognized or known. Um, but I mean, the, the basic point about somebody who's a foreign agent is they're, they're obligated under federal law to uh, register the existence of that relationship. Okay. couple quick things before we slightly change tack. Is it more difficult to get away with this in a, in a world where there's no cash? For example, I think it was Sweden, can't be sure. There's one European country which is at least making noises about being cashless. Do they do that partly to protect against this kind of thing? Absolutely. So uh, the elimination of cash uh, is something that makes it much more difficult to engage in money laundering. I mean, the recording of every transaction, uh, whether the government sort of knows about it or not, the recording of every transaction preserves a trail uh, that can subsequently uh, be followed up. You know, as, as I mentioned, follow the money was was kind of the way uh, Watergate was was somewhat uncovered. And I think, you know, that that really is very powerful in a system where there's no cash. Um, the increasing use of electronic payments and electronic transactions uh, make it much more difficult to engage uh, in kind of garden variety money laundering. Doesn't preclude it. Doesn't preclude shell corporations and third parties and sending money through uh, sort of intermediaries and that sort of thing. But it certainly makes it more difficult. Sure. And one other thing before we break. The crypto in cryptocurrency leads me to believe that that might be something that would be difficult to track if it's used in money laundering. Cryptocurrency. What is cryptocurrency? So cryptocurrency is an area that is well beyond my expertise, but it's uh, essentially a form of uh, money that's not issued by any country, uh, which, is, which is the way all, all the other forms of money that we're familiar with. There's also no trusted intermediary as a bank, correct? Yes. And uh, so the result of that is... It's much, much more difficult to trace. And in fact, it's one of the concerns is that it's used uh, by people who are interested in avoiding traceability. We talked about 
money laundering, understanding it. Uh, but I actually want to ask you a little bit about your what you do for your day job at the Center for Law and Social Responsibility, part of the New England, part of New England Law in Boston. So that's thanks very much for asking, Bradley. Yeah. So uh, about 18 years ago, uh, the uh, New England Law faculty. Uh, created the Center for Law and Social Responsibility. And, and, you know, a lot of people might say, well, that's kind of an oxymoron, right? Law and Social Responsibility. Uh, and this is an organi- this is a, an entity uh, that develops public interest opportunities for students and faculty. So I'll give you a quick example. For the last eight years, uh, a group of students have worked uh, and developed a project helping indigent defendants seal up their old criminal records. So these are people who either got out of jail, got out of prison, or never were in jail, never were in prison, uh, who can't get a job or housing or move up or volunteer at their kid's school uh, because of their criminal record. One of the things a lot of people don't know is that in a lot of jurisdictions, including in Massachusetts, people can have a criminal record even though they've never been convicted of a crime. They were arrested, they were charged, case was dismissed, uh, it was, uh, they were found not guilty, whatever. And that's the kind of thing that students, completely as a volunteer activity, uh, working on Friday afternoons um, for the last eight years, uh, have essentially established their own sort of uh, special purpose law firm uh, under the Center of Law and Social Responsibility that handles this. That's the kind of thing they do. David Siegel, you also are involved in China. You go to China so uh, and you teach. So I, I go to China and uh, I, I teach, and I hope that students are learning something. Um, I've had the privilege to uh, be able to teach in a couple of different places in China for the last uh, seven or eight years uh, in Sichuan province in southwest China, a city called Chengdu, uh, and in Beijing, the capital of China, uh, at a, the world's largest university for uh, legal instruction. This is uh, a school called the China University for Political Science and Law. Uh, and I've also uh, done some uh, lecturing at different, different schools in the Beijing area and in Chengdu. And one of the things that's really fascinating is the just insatiable interest that Chinese law students have in the American legal system, and uh, especially in the American criminal justice system. Uh, there are, uh, you know, China for a long time had had I want to say no law. It had sort of the the, the legal system, the courts, the law schools were closed uh, by the Communist Party, and that only began to change uh, in the 1990s. And the result is that uh, there are now uh, schools uh, and courts that have only been functioning for uh, two, two and a half decades. Um, and they're in that period, they've of course, uh, written basic laws in, in areas of criminal law and criminal procedure and, and civil uh, practice. And, and in all of these things, they look for 
uh, models elsewhere in one of the area, one of the countries that they look to uh, quite a bit for models in the criminal area is the United States. So are these future Chinese legislators? Because if you were simply practicing law in China, wouldn't it just confuse you to understand? I'd be studying a U.S. law. So uh, these are future lawyers, okay, uh, and they're future uh, business leaders and uh, leaders in uh, leaders in the country. Uh, one of the one of the things that's interesting is how how much Chinese law students look uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, for the way it deals with basic questions, how familiar they are with basic U.S. Supreme Court jurisprudence in a lot of areas, um, and how uh, ready they are to compare uh, practices of the American legal system with their own. I'm surprised the Chinese government condones this learning about Western ways, because haven't they even taken measures to censor search engines? And if they have, why are they okay with learning U.S. Supreme Court law? Isn't that just going to make them restless? Well, the Internet in China is quite strictly regulated and censored. Uh, there's something called the Great Firewall that prevents access to a great deal of information outside China. That's a reference um, to the Great Wall, I guess. Uh, right? It's it's a it's a reference to the Great Wall uh, in in digital form or virtual form. Um, but you know, many Chinese students study abroad. Many Chinese students uh, access the internet certainly when they're outside China and have a much wider view and are and are very interested in developments uh, in the West. Uh, that's not to say that they necessarily uh, feel completely open uh, in, in their discussions, but certainly there's openness in universities uh, to exposing them to uh, Western and American legal thinking. Having spent some time in both legal systems, can you give me a couple of major differences in between the U.S. system and the China Chinese system, perhaps there are certain things that we enjoy they don't, vice versa. Uh, well, I think certainly we would count uh, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, uh, those kinds of things uh, as things that we enjoy that are are not enjoyed, uh, certainly not in the same degree. Can they be put in jail for saying something? So, uh, yes. Uh, there are certainly ramifications, and I think we would we would not consider that the Chinese criminal justice system uh, reflects the rule of law in its operation. Uh, it's the courts uh, are not independent of the government in the sense that we consider the judiciary independent here, um, and in fact they're not even independent of the party. They're supervised uh, part. Part of sort of their structure is supervision by the government and by the party. So in that sense, um, it's quite different. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the Chinese legal system is growing and it is operating in order to 
resolve disputes between uh, businesses and individuals. And even in some cases, it's hearing disputes individuals have with the state. It's not deciding any of those, but it's there's starting to be a little bit of readiness to hear those disputes. Is there anything that we would do well to borrow from the Chinese, or are we just, is our system a better thing in every way? Uh, I, I wouldn't say that any country has a better system in any way on anything. Um, there are, you know, certainly aspects of, of the Chinese legal regime that we might be well to do well to consider. So one of the things that the uh, Chinese uh, students and academics, and I've actually spoken with uh, to law enforcement officials in China as well, one of the things they find very, very hard to understand is the prevalence of firearms in the United States. So there is virtually no private ownership of firearms in China. And as a result, uh, it's a country of you know, 1.2, 1.3 billion people with uh, virtually no um, gunshot fatalities. Um, that's something that might be worth uh, considering uh, as, a, as a goal in this country. On the other hand, pro-gun folks would say, well, the reason their government can have such control is because nobody has a gun. So I think there are a lot of reasons uh, the government has control. It's an authoritarian country. Uh, there is not freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. Uh, there is not an independent judiciary. There is not a free press. There is not anything remotely like a free media or this show. Uh, so all of those things, I think, are important as well. David Siegel, thank you very, very much. Excellent job. And thanks to the Center for Law and Social Responsibility and New England Law for letting you, encouraging you to come out and join us tonight. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Bradley. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.